Welcome to Creative Careers. This is Grace Cho, CEO of Entrepreneur. Today we have Kathleen Jordan joining us from Neiman Marcus Group. I'm very excited to speak with her today. She's going to tell us a little bit about herself, her love of art, and how art has been an important factor uh, for Neiman Marcus for many years. So welcome, Kathleen. Oh, thank you, Grace. It's very nice for you to have me. I'm very excited to talk to you about your insights and your experience. But first, let's let's discuss uh, your current position. What do you do at Neiman Marcus? So I am the vice president of store design, planning, and construction, which is a all-encompassing role that pulls in all the way in the beginning to retail strategy, retail design through documentation of those ideas, and then ultimately buying out the construction contracts and seeing the projects come to life. So I consider myself really lucky in the ability to be able to imagine a project and then see it come to fruition at the end of the day. Uh, I don't think a lot of people have the luck and the good fortune to share their daily work with the public at large. And I love that people get to interact with what I do every day. That's a great way to put it. How did you come to this point? Uh, What's been your background that led you to this position? So I am a registered architect and a licensed interior designer. I trained as an architect. And my very first job out of school was actually in-house for what was then called Kinney Shoe Corporation, which was owned by Woolworth which in turn owned about 20 to 25 different retail brands. And as I worked for them, I created and developed the first Champ Sports prototype and worked there exactly a year and pulled the set together that outlined what those details were for that store so that they could be passed on to implementation architects. And then I resigned and went to work for what I considered a real architecture firm, which is called Walker Group CNI led by Ken Walker. And Ken is probably one of the people that were pioneers in creating retail design as an independent discipline. And it was really an amazing experience to be able to work for him for almost 10 years. And just the people that worked there, it was like retail university. And that foundation was so pivotal in my next springboard to Gensler, which is a large international design firm, both architecture and interiors. And I ran the retail practice in the Northeast and actually was part of the firm-wide leadership for retail for most of my tenure at Gensler, which was 23 years. And I had the amazing fortune to work with some pretty fantastic brands, anywhere from Adidas, Gucci, Neiman Marcus as well, and Holt Renfrew, Galleries Lafayette, just a whole host of different retailers globally that allowed me to play with the idea of brand integration, brand expression, customer experience, color, inspiration, you name it, digital integration. And so I kind of got to a point, and I I think I became one of those COVID resignees that wanted a seat at the table. I, you know, architecture firms are given a project to do, and I wanted to help craft what those projects were. I'm passionate about retail. I've seen a lot. I know a lot. And I just felt if I could get in the game 
that much earlier, I could actually affect change. And so I left Gensler and made that leap and ended up talking to Neiman's within a couple of days of that departure. And they gave me the opportunity to come on board. And to me, it's almost like I'm getting my PhD because I'm bringing to bear everything I've done for over 30 years for retailers for the benefit of one brand. And that to me is so amazing to be able to bring all my ideas to the table and see where I can make them work and where they can really amplify the business and amplify the customer experience. And now the art strategy is a big piece of that. Mm. I love the way that you expressed your current position as the PhD. All those experiences led you to this moment to be able to have the impact on the future strategy. So that's great. It's very inspiring. It, you know, I, I consider myself so fortunate to have had an amazing career at a couple of amazing firms. And now I work for a pretty fantastic organization that has a mission, and that is to propel us into the future in the best possible way and set the torch for luxury retail experience. And I'm just so flattered to be a part of it. You'll be in a very important position to help set that forth. So with that, tell us about the story of Neiman Marcus a little bit. They have a long history with the arts. They do. And you're pulling on that to sort of create the future in a way. Absolutely. You know, I, I started working for Neiman Marcus as a consultant back in 1993. And at the time, they had a full-time art person that procured the art for each of the stores and cataloged things. And at the time, it was always very important to find those places in the store, very purposeful and intentional, where we could display art. So the break zones between different departments or categories always became opportunities for what we call transition walls that always had to be at least six feet wide to allow the art curator to purchase significant pieces of art and have them in the store. So as far back as then, it's always been a priority to make room for art, to make sure that it's part and parcel of the environment. I mean, if you go back as far as Stanley Marcus, he had an absolute love of art and architecture. We have a portfolio of buildings, and I'll, I'll go here first, because he took stock in what was happening in the architectural world, and his tastes strayed to the brutalist, and we have quite a few brutalist buildings, but they have become timeless, which is amazing to me. If you look at our Los Angeles store, there are moments there that it's just this beautiful object and our Northbrook store and our Oakbrook store and, and our Houston store. So, so there's definitely families of stores that were affected by Stanley Marcus and his taste, his level of taste and his education in the arts, which I don't know if it was formal or not, but he definitely understood the tenets of good art and design. You know, we strayed, I think, into postmodernism, which I don't think was necessarily Stanley's influence, but I think what it was is people understood that brutalism was a movement, postmodernism was a movement, and so the buildings should align with a movement. And if you look at our San Francisco store, our, our Michigan Avenue store, very much, I mean, our San Francisco store was designed by Philip Johnson, who's probably one of the premier 
names in the postmodern movement. So with that, you know, art was also a huge piece of his passion. And he he had an uncanny ability to see art for its meaning and how to utilize that to inspire people, to educate people, to make their lives better. And he introduced the objects that he purchased, and he purchased them because he loved them, into the downtown store as pieces within the the store, also within the headquarters area, which is on top of the downtown store. And then it started infiltrating the other stores as well. And the early part of our collection was absolutely phenomenal up through probably the late 70s. And then Stanley started becoming less active in the procurement of art, and it became turned over more to staff level, so to speak. And it sort of lost its way as you get into the late 90s, where when it was picked up from Stanley, commissions were made for art in general, just to be fabulous pieces to add to the collection. And then pieces were commissioned for stores specifically to embed into the community and source local artists. And that was very much when I was working in 93, when we were working on the project for the Ala Moana store, we engaged the local market and all the art in the Ala Moana store was created by local artists. And that really became the trend for kind of the next couple of stores. But I think as the volume of projects increased and just the need to put art in multiple stores in a very short time frame, the program sort of lost its way. It got somewhat diluted from its ideology and it became more about purchasing quantity than it did quality. And so, you know, fast forward to today, we have a, a mixed bag of a collection that has some very valuable and meaningful pieces. And and then it has some pieces that graphically are interesting, but really not important to the art world per se. So we're evaluating how to deal with those. And we'll probably deal with them in two ways, that latter grouping. One, probably through donation to art charities that each of our stores are involved in. Most of our general managers of our stores are very active in their local communities with the local museums or art leagues, etc. And these institutions are usually, you know, not-for-profit and certainly um, silent auctions have become or online auctions have been a big fundraiser vehicle. I know that's been the case here in Charlotte. And, you know, to be able to donate some of those pieces for their audience to do silent auction, that I feel is a a valuable thing for us to do to help support those organizations and the art go to a place that someone will really love it and enjoy it. Because I think art needs to be enjoyed. It shouldn't be stored. The second bucket for the remaining art is how can I help improve some stores, give them a facelift, add some some creativity in areas that you know may not be remodeled or even amplify a remodel that's going on and accent a certain area. So we have, as part of the collection, numerous pieces by individual artists. So some artists, we have 40 of their pieces. Others, we have 20 of their pieces. Because the art buyer at the time was literally going to the galleries and saying, who do you have a lot of pieces, you know, who's prolific, who has a lot of pieces that, you know, they could use throughout a large store during that period of mass production of our real estate. 
And, you know, so how can I use those pieces in a creative way and look at the opportunities and maybe collage the pieces together Mm. or collage different artists together to create some excitement and just visual curiosity and sight curiosity, I think is a big thing. And you just use them in unexpected ways and areas that may not normally get art may get art just to to lure people into corners and things like that. You know, so I figure we have it, let's use it. And And again, just to be able to share it with our customers and bring it to light, because all art deserves to be celebrated. So that's where we're there with the existing. And then if you want me, I can launch into sort of where we want to go in the future. Yes, please. So Neiman's is actually in the process of modifying its brand voice. And by that, I mean, how do we communicate to our customer, what is the language we use, and trying to put together a consistency of delivery of messaging. And through this exercise, and certainly led by our CEO, is this idea around leading with love. And what I mean by that is all our sales associates very much get engaged with our customers. They embed themselves into their customers' lives and really get to know them and care about them. And we love that. That is a big part of Neiman's culture. We want to help our customers have the best lifestyle they can possibly have. And that's not just necessarily the clothes or the shoes or the makeup or treatments. It has everything to do about how they feel and how they live their lives and where we can share what we know and what we have access to, to improve those lives. And to me, leading with love extends not just to our immediate customer, but to the community at large where each of our stores sit. And currently we have 37 stores and each sit in very different markets. And even where we have clusters of stores, I think those communities, the immediate communities, are unique unto themselves. And so using the store as a tool to allow the store team to embed in the community, to become part of that fabric and invite that fabric into our world, to become a part of it, I think it's just an amazing opportunity that our art strategy wants to use to move forward and embrace the community at large, the arts community in particular, how to give young artists a platform, how to give established artists the opportunity to share their work and teach younger artists or the population at large. There's so much opportunity for the store to be a stage. And I love the idea of partnering with these local artists so that whether it is a mural that maybe is only up for a year and then we invite another muralist in or it's a permanent installation that you know needs to live in perpetuity for that store or at least for a pretty significant amount of time but wrapping around that the storytelling vehicle of how that piece came to be what it means and allow the associates to be able to share that story with our customers and for our customers to find those stories on our website or in store, I think is amazing. It's an opportunity and a responsibility. And I really look forward to being able to put this into play because I just see 
so much unfolding and wrapping around it. There's just so much potential here. I'm very, very excited to hear this. And this is nothing new for you because I read an old article, uh, an interview of yours, I think it was like almost exactly nine years ago, where you were talking about creating a, a compelling place as the retailer should be a compelling part of the community fabric. Even back then, you were saying the same thing. You you really believe in this. I do. I you know it's it's funny. I I think I wrote a white paper called "The Resurgence of the Department Store" back in 2010, 2011, mm. and all those points are still relevant. I, you know, it's these are simple things in my mind. Now that I'm on the inside. I see why it gets challenging. And a big part of my job, and it wasn't in my job description, but I see the need. And so I took it on is to be an aggregator, to be an instigator, to challenge, to pull together. Because art, in particular, this art strategy crosses many, many lines within our company. And so gaining consensus and moving the ball forward is a labor of love. And I do believe in it very strongly. I, I feel that it is a huge point of differentiation for us because we are moving from putting art on the wall to storytelling. And that to me is a critical difference. And that ability to share our point of view with leading with love is huge, especially in today's world where everybody just feels so angry and there's so much hate. And how can we neutralize that? How can we use the store to be a safe haven for people to come in, to enjoy themselves, to have some fun, mm. let there be levity wow, and let there be learning? That's, it's powerful what you're talking about there. You're looking at a place like Neiman Marcus as a, as a cultural center, as a learning center, a place to come together and be really positive and enjoy life. And I don't know if if anybody else is listening about this in the retail world, but my goodness, if if you're able to achieve this, who wouldn't want to go there? That's the hope, right? That is the hope, you know, and, and it's how do you make all the components sing? How do you pull together digital? What is the appropriate digital response? How do we link our app mm -hmm. and our online with our store? How do we use our in-store visual displays, which I think we do the best in the industry? How do we supersize that in-store to create these amazing inspirational moments to allow people to escape a little bit, to say, I want that's what I want to look like when I walk out the door tomorrow? There's so much opportunity to just let people escape and fantasize a little bit and be inspired for how to craft what their identity is, how they portray themselves. It is amazing. And I'll, I'm just going to sidebar on this a little bit. I was on the board of Bottomless Closet when mm -hmm. I was in New York City. And it's an amazing organization. It's mm -hmm. similar to Dress for Success, but it exclusively focuses on the five boroughs of New York. And it helps women get off welfare, stand on their own two feet helps them get jobs, helps them sustain their jobs, helps them with financial. And what I mean by financial is, is advice, how to, how to get out of debt, how to plan for a house. And one of the things that was a big component of that, like similar to Dress for Success, we had a little store, what we called a store, alongside the office area. 
and we would dress the clients. So they mm-hmm. would come in, we would help them with their resumes, we would do practice interviews with them to prepare them to pursue jobs. And then we would outfit them and we would give them two outfits, set them at everything from accessories to shoes to, to the clothing. And the transformation on these women was unbelievable. They would go from, you know, kind of a, a slumped stature to holding their head up high. And tears were shed on every side half the time because it was just transformational mm-hmm. moments. And clothing can do that. It and, absolutely can. You know, oh it, it, it can give you confidence when you feel yes. good, when you feel put together. And part of our leading with love is our stylists and how they can share their fashion savvy and help our customers be their best selves. What, what looks fantastic on them? What is in style? You know, if you want to be a little edgy, trendy, here's a moment for you. You know, so all of that wraps together. And then you couple that with arming them with a high level education on art and what they can glean from the art that we have in our stores and why that's important and what those stories are and who those artists are and where they came from and where are they in the ecosystem of our retail life. I think all of that is so, so valuable for promoting people's kind of well-being and and self-confidence. Exactly. You know, in this day, uh, with so much going on in the world and in our lives, emotional wellness, mental wellness is so critical now. And for a place to give you that a brief moment of respite with a lasting impact of a fresh new outfit or something, uh, or learn something new about an artist, that, that, I think that gives back a hundredfold. It's the goal. It, it really is. And I think that's why I love Neiman's so much. I mean, I was a Neiman's shopper prior to working for them as a consultant and certainly became more of a shopper as I was a consultant, um, just given my visibility. And now I'm unbelievable shopper because I get the, the discount. But <laughs> it's the craft of the garments. I was walking through our LA store with its general manager. And, you know, she shared with me the story behind the collection that Maison Mojella had just put out. And it was amazing mm. to just hear, you know, you look at some of these garments and you're like, oh, where did that come from? And, but she could tell me. And it was the story that made it fabulous, you know, and, and fashion to me is a cousin to art. It's in that world. Absolutely. And yes. so, if we are to embrace fashion and the stories that these designers tell with the clothing they produce, art is just intrinsically welcome and needed in our store environments as part of that fabric of here, here are the united arts and this is the comprehensive view that makes a better world that you, know, you can look through this lens and see other people's interpretations of it. And sometimes it can be fantastical and sometimes it can be really sorrowful, but it feeds your soul to know those stories. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we want to bring to our customers because I think they, they need it and they want it. And so for us to be able to give them access to that is a very sacred position, 
I feel. And we need to treat that with a lot of respect and make these stores a platform for achieving art awareness and education. I love everything you're saying, especially because we're living in a social, you know, all the devices and FaceTime and all of these things. But to be able to be in a store, physical universe, tactile, there's a lot more, you know, satisfaction, fulfillment in in that environment. It's unexpected. And I think that's where the fun is. You know, how can you bring surprise and delight to our customers in a way that doesn't get in the way, but it just makes it all come together in a more special way. It's kind of the the row on top of the sushi in a little in a little bit, you know, it's kind of how do how do you bring it all together so so it just tastes even more yummy than it would have without it. Oh, what a great analogy. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I had sushi last night, so I, <laughs> I got inspired by sushi. You know, as I listen to you, Kathleen, it's an amazing convergence of psychology, emotional intelligence, anthropology, just a really great study and observationist of human behavior. And you've done that so beautifully, weaving through you know together all these these attributes of of beauty. I think that's remarkable. And and I think it shows the the great set of learnings you've had over over the years of art and design in a lot of these places. Well, you know, it's funny. They don't really teach the emotional effects of architecture in architecture school, or at least they didn't when I was in school. And they should, because I've definitely observed it. I do remember when Peter Eisenman was commissioned the there was a building on the Ohio State campus and my cousin at the time was in architecture school at Ohio State and I remember visiting him and the building had windows all over the place because he was creating this object and locating those windows based on the composition as as you view the building in the distance but what he didn't take into consideration was that the woman sitting at the desk with the window at her feet had A, no view, and B, had her legs exposed to the campus, you know, when she was sitting at her desk. And that, to me, is a disservice to the client because you're creating something that's not benefiting the user. And it's obviously a disservice to the user. So what I loved during my time at Gensler was the focus on designing from the inside out. Art Gensler was an amazing man. And he, he felt very strongly that the user had to be paramount and that we really couldn't even start projects until we interviewed our prospective clients, the user groups, and collected all the data that would possibly feed into what the project could be. And that was extremely foundational. I arrived at Gensler with about 10 years of experience, and it was probably just the right time for me to start absorbing that sort of high-level thinking and strategy to propel me through the next 23 years of my work. Because you have to understand how someone comes into that space and reacts to what they're given to look at engaged with, encounter, you know, when you look at a store and you walk into it, it's not worth putting anything in the first 
10 to 12 feet because to me it's a fast zone. People need time to acclimate when they enter your store and they're going to come in and they're going to assess what their options are. And yes, they usually do turn right as opposed to left, but I think that's more because they're right-handed as opposed to left-handed, but I'm left-handed, so I go left. <laughs> but the ability to assess is, is critical. Human, you know, that's, that's part of our essential DNA of survival back from the caveman days. So you have to understand your circumstances. You need to feel safe. You do become intrigued by things that stand out in the distance. So how do you play with that to create landmarks for areas because people like breadcrumbs so they can find their way back? It's all about security and playing on those prime emotions that people have and how do you reveal that in space and allow that journey to be frictionless, to be joyful, to allow for experiences that may be unexpected. Scent is a big part of these things. Daylight mm. is huge. We're looking at introducing biophilic design into the stores because, let's face it, plants make people happy. So all of these things need to be brought to bear. Color, color in and of itself is an amazing like micro study that how color affects people. I think there's been a lot of great research over the years, especially with memory care wards and elder housing and the need to be able to control emotions and, and keep people in a stable state. Um, it's, it's really amazing. And, you know, I've learned things through different articles and presentations and seminars that I've attended, sometimes by chance, sometimes by intention. It is amazing that the data that continues to accumulate over time on how you can affect people and their emotions through the materials you choose, the colors you use. Designers have a big responsibility, and I don't, I don't know if they fully understand that because I, I don't think they put enough emphasis on it in school. And so it's, it's up to you as a human being to be in tune to the human beings around you. And I, I use my own myself and my 23-year-old daughter as litmus tests for mm. a lot of what I choose to do or experiment mm. with. Have you seen a difference in all the years? I know you've done some global work as well. So through the years, has time changed some of this stuff or do you see a difference geographically? Hmm. That's a great question. I think where it changes is socioeconomic development and expectations. And so where you're dealing with, and I'm kind of, I'm, I'm recalling some of the work in China, some of the work in Brazil, where you have these huge swings of the haves and the have-nots. India is another one. You have this beautifully functional retail that facilitates what the lower economic strata requires. And it's a get in, get out. And it's very, it's task oriented. It's need based. And then you move up in the socioeconomic strata to where it becomes more about want and desire and access. And that increases as the dollars increase of availability in their wallet share. So that's, that's where design really starts to come into play is that mid-tier 
And as you move up into the higher tier, it just becomes more intense. So as you move into the luxury market, design really matters. And that to me is a universal. It's just where where the different countries sit and who your particular client is focusing on. When I was at Gensler, we did work with Palacio de Hierro in Mexico. And certainly that's another one with big swings. But what I loved about working on that project was whole families shop together. So that, that so the, here's your cultural differences is that I think in the United States, you've got a mm-hmm. lot of lone people. You know, you don't have a problem going to the mall, doing what you got to do. You come home by yourself. In Mexico, and, and there's other cultures like this, it's very family oriented or large groups of friends. And, and they'll make a day of it. And these department stores, they are massive and no art to be found, unfortunately. But, you know, you go in and they, they have every category under the sun, including travel agencies and beauty salons, and they'll sell motorbikes and you name it, it's there. And, and they have a fabulous food hall. And so they'll, they'll eat their meal there as well as the shopping planning trips, planning weddings. It's an event and and it's shared communally. So shopping definitely is different in the United States versus some other countries that are very group oriented or, or family oriented, because I don't think the United States is that. Mm. So have you seen a difference in the US over the last few years? Any trends that have changed, trends that have surprised you? I think the biggest trend that I've seen, and certainly it was starting before COVID, but COVID really accelerated it, was, well, there were two things. One was localization. There's been a strong Mm -hmm. desire for, for retail to be of its community as opposed to being ubiquitous. My early years at, at Gensler, I did a lot of work for Gap and probably put a lot of gaps on the East Coast. You know, banks are another one. They're ubiquitous. They all look the same and they're on every corner. But people don't want that. People want to feel like the store knows who they are, knows who their community is, and embraces that and celebrates it and brings it in a way that engages them. And I'm trying to, I think West Elm has done this through product Mm. offering where, you know, the first entry area of their store is given over to local product. And while their store design is fairly similar for every location, they're definitely making an intentional effort to localize product in a meaningful way, not just one or two, but, you know, the give over of a significant area and categories to local. And I think retail. I did not know that. Oh, that's an interesting strategy. And I think that's really important. I, you know, I think there's, this is a huge country and and it's definitely varied by, you know, after living a lifetime in the New York city area and then relocating to Charlotte, North Carolina, four years ago, um, these different areas have different eccentricities, likes, dislikes, tastes, you know, certainly weather 
influences a lot of that. My husband and I were having a debate about white before Memorial Day oh. last night. <laughs> and and he's like, I, he's like, I thought it was Easter. I'm like, well, you grow up in North Carolina. It's warmer here. You know, up, up north, it was Memorial Day. So because it can still be cold in May. It's interesting because I think that particular trend is probably the single biggest opportunity to engage your customer in an environment. It's a big unlock. And it's not easy to do it authentically. But to me, it reaps many, many rewards of goodwill and genuine interest in where you've parked your store. Mm. So the second trend that I've seen, I think that everybody's seen, is just the accelerated adoption of digital. I mean, we have trained people to use their phones, to read menus, to order online, to do all kinds of things. And I think that's become a a great equalizer and an opportunity. And we need to figure, we sort of the larger world of retailers need to figure out how to make that journey more seamless. Because right now it's, I think there's people that are doing bits of it well, but how to use technology, not in a gimmicky way, but in a way that, again, makes it a frictionless experience that allows people to get time back in their lives, to find cool stuff, to give back, if that's part of an opportunity, circular community. So I think that's, that's the opportunity because I think there's that willingness for people to buy in where that willingness wasn't there before COVID. Mm-hmm. So those two alone, I think, will help reshape what retail looks like as we go forward. Very, very interesting. I I agree with you on both points. I'm going to switch gears for a moment. I know that you're an artist. A little bit. um... (laughs) You are an artist. So tell us uh, a little bit about what you do. So I love to work with my hands. I, I think I got that from my maternal grandfather. He was a carpenter. I remember I used to go down and root around in his workshop, which was in the basement of their house. And I still have his tape measure. I just fell in love with the tape measure. And I'm like, I have to have this. And there's just something so cathartic about putting your hands to objects and crafting them into something else. I'm fascinated by objects in general and how can you transform those objects. So I've been working in mixed media collage for probably 35 years easily. Mm. And being able to take ordinary objects and pull them together and tell a story in either an overt or a very sublime way to me is fascinating. To give ordinary objects new meaning or a new life, I just love that. I think that's probably why I enjoy, as an architect, enjoy renovations as opposed to new builds mm-hmm. because you're you're bringing life back, you're reinventing. You know, some of my favorite pieces are, you know, wood slabs that I found either on job sites or just laying around. I, I've assembled dog tags and mm. stones and pieces of cash registers, and you know, there's there's a story there. That may not necessarily be intuitive, but there is in my head. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about introducing the art in a meaningful way into the stores, because I know there's a story there. If there's someone behind creating something, 
that creation has a story. Like right now I'm working on a series that I'm calling it Dreamcatchers. So in, inspired by Native American Dreamcatchers. Ah. But I'm using hubcaps that I've found on the road as I've walked my dog as the basis of the Dreamcatcher. Wow. And then layering in pieces of, I had found this massive lace tablecloth at one of the second, not a second, it's like an antique mall. I love antique malls. Mm -hmm. I can get lost in them forever. And me too. So cutting up pieces of the lace with the hubcap to create the dream catcher itself and then suspending from it objects of ordinary life. Again, partially found from walking my dog. So things that were found on the streets of Charlotte or in the streets of New Jersey when I lived in New Jersey or in New York City when I worked there and and bringing those pieces together and and some other pieces like my old Blackberry. (laughs) We all love our old Blackberries. Right? So it's like, it's it's just fragments of life in a way. Oh, I love this. I love the way you're describing this. There's great meaning. To me, you know, yes. and, and so, you know, there'll probably be somewhere between six and nine of them all together. Mm. I'm working on the first two and I'm, I'm working on two simultaneously because I'm trying to bounce them off of each other. Mm-hmm. So I start to understand the balance because there's, you know, there's the story, but then there's also composition, right? Color as well as weight of objects and things like that. So probably be taking them two at a time to move forward. And then the the other piece of it, which is which is somewhat similar, is jewelry design. And um, I started taking jewelry design classes last year, it, and that had been a dream of mine forever. I took casting when I was in architecture school, and I took ceramics when I was in architecture school as well, just as like diversion classes. And actually, did my my final architectural project using ceramics mm. to show my study my study models, which I'm actually looking at. They're, they still sit on my desk, wow. like 34 years later. Nice. But um, it is amazing; they've survived moves and oh, all kinds of things. But, <laughs> exactly, but you know, it, it's just to me, it's the process and the jewelry design. I, I just I love jewelry. I'm very fascinated by it. It's architectural. It is architectural. I mean, it all kind of comes back to form and function and, you know, exactly. Um, I actually did create a jewelry version of an abstracted tape measure. Oh, love it. That was one of my little assignments in my, my jewelry class. But it's, to me, it's just, it's an amazing way for me to work through the creative process. And sometimes if I'm stuck on say, a solution for one of the store designs, I can go and immerse myself in one of these other pursuits and get an unlock. And that's huge because I think when you are right-brained as I am, you can you can get kind of stuck in one, one mode of creativity because you keep trying to make that work. And sometimes you have to step back to see it clearly and then come back to it. It's that 40,000 foot view versus the four foot view. Backing up is really important. And diving into other pursuits is a good way to back up. 100% agree. And sometimes you get answers just by doing yes. to a problem that's yes. rolling around in your head. That's wonderful. I love this. We got to see it. We'll have to see it soon. Wow. There's a lot that you've experienced, a lot you've seen and observed. And I'm very curious to hear your answer about this final thing, which is, you know, for other business leaders, they always sort of look at this from a 
single facet, but you look at it from so many different points. And I find that fascinating. So what advice would you give to other business leaders when they're trying to solve a problem, whatever it is, how do they incorporate art into their strategy and why? I think what they need to understand first and foremost is it's their obligation to bring their audience and be it their workforce or their customers or whoever they're inviting into their world to bring them joy. And I don't think a lot of business leaders think on that level. They tend to be very bottom line driven. It's about monetary return, especially if you have shareholders and you're a public entity. But what what I think people need to understand is there's an ROI money-wise, but then there's also an ROI people-wise. Sometimes you can't measure that. And you have to give over to faith that that's the right direction. If it feels good, if it makes people happy, it will pay dividends. You may not know what those are, and it may take a while to unlock what that is, but the ability to introduce a side conversation to the main conversation allows for someone's brain to relax. And I think that's what art does. It relieves pressure. It enhances an environment. It educates and it plays with people's emotions, hopefully in a good way. But it's also an opportunity to talk about company values, company culture, and what's important to that company in a meaningful and artful way that probably has greater impact than an annual report. And so the ability for a leader to think more in people terms and people metrics than financial terms and financial metrics, I believe is the strategy that needs to be employed going forward. I mean, certainly if you look at what's going on today with the workforce and people choosing to want to stay home, what's the good reason to go into the office? Retention of employees, the younger generation wanting to know, what are you doing to help the environment? What are you doing to help the quality of my life? Why should I work for you? The people equation is where company leaders need to focus, not the financial. The financial will come because if you make the people happy, you get loyalty and loyalty will feed that business. And if that business is fed, you're going to reap the financial dividends. But it's that leap of faith and that willingness to be strong, to see it through an authentic way. That's where I think all business leaders need to go. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I've never heard it so eloquently spoken that way. Makes perfect sense. It's logical. It's an incredible statement you just made there, Kathleen. I I can only hope that others agree because it is, it's critical for our salvation, I think. We're human. (laughs) Exactly. We have to remember we're all human first. That's where it begins. And if you have that extra layer of sensitivity to know that, then guess what? Success will come. Exactly. Kathleen, it's been a great honor, a great pleasure. This is the most enjoyable podcast ever. (laughs) I thank you for your time. This is like, I could go on forever. I would like to invite you back. I'd be happy to join. And we can talk about more about this. Um, I really was uh, taken by, by your comments. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Grace. I really enjoyed talking.